Well, good morning. Here comes a shock to your system. First Corinthians chapter 1. You say, I didn't know there was any other book, but uh, Revelation. First Corinthians chapter number 1. We're going to spend some time talking about God's toolbox. God's toolbox. So, in 1 Corinthians 1, let's head over to verse 26. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter here. There's about six verses before us. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We are in need of your direction, your uh, uh, work in our life, to make us what we ought to be. And as we have this passage before us today, we submit ourselves to your teaching. We pray that your spirit might be at work in our hearts to, to do that work that shapes us into the image of Christ, the ultimate servant. Teach us more about this today, Lord, and, and please be, feel to, be, be free to work in our hearts and make us what we ought to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we concluded our study on heaven. Now, it was not all that could be said on the topic. I left a little bit for you to uh, uh, investigate as well. But at the end of our study, and the thrust really of all uh, passages that deal with eschatology, that's the big word you've been studying, by the way. It's a study of end times. Uh, it brings us to a very practical uh, side of things. What do we do with that which we know? And I have found if we know what we're doing forever, as the passage tells us, especially in Revelation 22, verse 3, where it says there is no longer any curse, the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. That sums up what our future has in store for us. We are servants of the Lord, bondservants, because we want to be... Uh, he, we have been chosen to that position, and, and that's what we're doing throughout eternity, is serve Him. So I believe that if we know that, we ought to be practicing that now. Practicing our service. So, it's very important, if we will be serving Him. And the things that we studied as well in that, in that uh, time, service was there often. We might not have noticed it as clear-cut, maybe I didn't highlight it as much. But after all, what is the evaluation at the uh, believer's judgment? What is it concerning? Our service, right? 
we are rewarded according to the things we have done. And so service is part of that. What are we doing throughout the millennial period? We're serving Him, aren't we, as we reign with Him. What are we doing throughout eternity after that? You just heard it. We will serve Him. So it's been all along that way. And there are seven words that you and I want to hear. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Servant. That's our do last word. We talked about it last week. That is all the way through Scripture. That's what you and I are supposed to be. Servant. And as that, a bond servant. A good servant. A devoted servant. Entirely at the disposal of our Master, right? That's what we should be. Entirely at the disposal of our Master. The idea behind this is we have a permanent union with God. It will never change. We are to seek His glory and His will. There's a lot of lessons in service. A lot of lessons in service uh, to God. And I don't know if we're even scratched the surface with the things I'd like to address over the next handful of uh, weeks or so. But what we're going to be doing up there forever, we ought to be practicing down here now. And that's the issue I want to deal with. Do you believe it's the Lord's will that you be a servant? We've got to start right here, okay? If you believe that's the Lord's will, that will make all the difference for what I want to share with you today. That's important. Service is His idea. It's His idea. He planned it long ago, and I'm going to show you some of this today especially. Uh, he not only has set it up that we will serve forever in heaven, but also that we serve here on this earth. And this is the very basics of service. And uh, we'll probably mention this a lot as we go through our study together, thinking of what God has done. But here's some of the basics. One, we should work and will for His pleasure. Now, that's a complicated little phrase, isn't it? To work and to will for His pleasure, what's that? Well, let's look at a couple of verses and and, uh, get these at least set before us. Ephesians chapter 2. Keep your finger in Corinthians, please. Ephesians 2, verse number 10. Verse number 10. These are familiar verses to you, I know. Just a couple of books beyond Corinthians there. Ephesians 2.10. For we are His workmanship. Whose workmanship? His. Created in Christ Jesus for something. For good works, right? Which, watch this, this is great. Which God prepared beforehand. That's the good works. He he prepared them in advance. He's not even letting you try to dream up what kind of good works to do. He's already prepared them. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? He's already prepared them beforehand that we should walk in them. So that's a very important verse. We're going to have to study that up a little bit more. Try Philippians chapter 2. Turn another book or so. Philippians, Ephesians, Philippians, next book, chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
Now, the work part we understand. The will part is the hard part, really, I think. Because <laughs> that involves the things that relate to my pride. That involves my thinking. That involves my resolve to do it. God is at work in my will to serve Him. God is at work in the work that I must do as well. That's very important that we understand. God's not just going to just take the physical side. He wants your will too. He wants all of you involved in service to Him. So that's where He's working. Philippians just told us that. It's also, by the way, this, this uh, work that he's doing in us to work into will for his pleasure is also part of what we call our sanctification. There's a great big word. I paid a lot of money to say it, so there it is. Sanctification. Turn over to Second Timothy. Just a handful of books beyond this. Second Timothy 2, verse 21. Sanctification means simply to set apart for a purpose. All right, to set it apart for a purpose. We practice that on on uh, uh, simply physical ways all the time. It's an everyday part of our life to set something aside for a reason. We have a plan for it, right? That's sanctification, and that's the, that's the word here. And this is what he said: Second Timothy two twenty one. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor sanctified. He'll be a vessel sanctified. Set apart for a purpose. He will be a vessel useful to the master. Useful is the idea of easily used and profitable to the master. Don't you want to be that? Easily used by the Lord? Not resistant? Not running the other way? Not complaining as you go? But easily used. Profitable for the master Prepared for every good work. Just a handful of, of significant verses here. Ephesians 2, Philippians 2, 2 Timothy 2. Now you're going to either be afraid of chapter 2's in the New Testament, or you're going to see that the Lord speaks a lot about service. And He does. The verses are, are everywhere in the epistles, how we are to serve. Now, I'm going to put all those verses kind of together and come up with a, a definition, if you will, of what he's doing and what we're called to. And it's rather lengthy, I think. But this is what we find. We have been created by God and set apart for the purpose to work in the fashion that he has already prepared for us. It's a lot of words, isn't it? But you, are you, say, say it again. We have been created by God and set apart for the purpose to work in the fashion that He has already prepared for us. He's working in our minds to desire to do that work and preparing us to be easily used in that manner. I'll make it even simpler. Now, I'll break it down into a handful of words. You are a prepared person for a prepared work. That's what you and I am. We are. We are prepared people for a prepared work. That's what he's doing. Now, of all the people in the New Testament, there was one group called the Corinthians who really needed some instructions on this. 
how to be a servant. Um, if we really wanted to study the, the picture of what a servant should look like, we would study the Lord Jesus Christ, obviously. He is the, the perfect example for us, obviously would be, but he is a perfect example of a servant. If we want to learn how not to do it, we study the Corinthians. Alright? That's, we're going to start there anyway, because I think they, they actually tend to reflect sometimes the way we get. How not to do it. How not to be the servant. Now, it's interesting that God had to deal with this church in this letter, 1 Corinthians, uh, with all kinds of issues they were having. Um, I would try to, to boil down all their problems into a, a simpler picture. This isn't uh, uh, meant to be the only answer to their problems, but it certainly is one of them. And that is, uh, they considered only certain elite, if you will, people to be qualified for service to God. Only certain people. They had to be able to do certain things. They had to have certain qualities. But those are the ones God used. Certain people. We studied from chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14 in, in this book, 1 Corinthians. We would see how Paul addresses spiritual gifts, for example. That's just a, a glimpse of the problem, really, was their, their problem with spiritual gifts. And he hit right in the heart of it, in the middle of that, with the issue of love. How do you serve? What, what is that that makes it different? But a uh, couple of examples I want to take you through to show you the kind of, of uh, mentality they had in this fellowship. Go over to 1 Corinthians 12, 21. Now I'm going to give you two examples, and it's like swinging the pendulum from one extreme to the other. All right? There were two groups addressed in this picture and they were just about as far apart as you could get. In 1 Corinthians 12, 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet. I have no need of you. <laughs> Can you see the mentality of some? Their opinion was, well... Uh, I consider myself to be in service because of my importance or whatever I am. Uh, I'm necessary and some of you aren't. Could you imagine how well that goes over in a group? I'm important and I can serve because I have special qualities and some people don't. There's a word right in the middle of all that and that's called pride. There is prideful groups out there who look upon themselves as highly gifted and capable and, and such, and they think, well, that's who God chooses, and the others, well, he doesn't need you. You say, well, that's a terrible way to start. Remember, maybe you don't know it, but maybe you do. The Dr. Seuss book about the star belly sneeches. There was those who had stars on their tummies, and they were important, and those who didn't were unimportant. I won't tell you the whole story. And don't start Googling it or something on your phone either. Uh, do it later. Starbelly Sneetches was a very, uh, quite a graphic picture of those who had it and those who didn't. Corinthians had that problem. Some had it and some didn't. 
So if you don't have it, you're not important. The eye says to, as he says here, the, the eye says to the hand, I don't need you. The head says to the feet, I don't need you. There's pride in that. Unfortunately, that does exist. Now, that's on one side of the pendulum. Swing it all the way to the other side, and you've got another group. Down in chapter 12, verse 15, or up in verse 15. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not part of the body. Is this not, is it not for this reason any less a part of the body? Verse 16. If the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not part of the body. And then he says the same thing. Here's another group that says, well, I'm not this. I'm not that. So I'm not a part of anything. Apparently they were listening to the first group. And they were convinced, I'm unnecessary in this body. I, I have no point here, no reason whatsoever. You know, that too is another kind of pride. Most people don't see it that way. They, they see it, you know, extreme uh, humility or there's other words for it perhaps. I call it a uh, self-defacing attitude. A self-defacing attitude. After all, God made us a certain way, but I'm going to deny that. Right? I don't like what God has done. I'm not pleased with what I see. Oh, you wouldn't say this, would you? I, I, I'm just, I, I think that my opinion is more useful for service than the way he designed me. What do you start calling this? When you start to say, well, well, I think I could do better if I designed myself to what I wanted to be. And then, sometimes it even gets to this point. Well, if I'm not what I want to be, I won't be anything. Hmm. Have you ever heard that before? People who step out and say, well, if I'm, if I'm not going to get my way, I'm not going to... By the way, who always wins these battles? You know? People step up with pride in a lot of different ways. But if the Lord is the one who's at work in the heart, who's going to win the battle ultimately? He will. He does every time. But see, we, we approach servicehood. Just the idea that we have to be servants. And we come with mentalities. The, the Corinthians certainly did. They had two groups in there. One side was in service, looking down on the other side that wasn't. The one that wasn't in service was really looking down on the other side because neither one of them were right with the Lord. They both had their element of pride. So Paul writes to them and says, this is not how you do it. The whole book is like that. How not to do it. Alright? So our First Corinthians passage. Let's go back to there. Very important section, chapter 1. Let's start pulling out pieces here that are very important to us that we understand. Verse 26 again. Consider your calling, brethren. There are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen. See those words? Underscore those in your thinking, or if you're a writer in your Bible, put them right there. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen, there it is again, the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen. How many times has he brought that up? Already three. You see, three times, right? God has chosen. God has chosen. God has chosen. Lesson number one in service. God chooses. 
This is important. God chooses. He does that with his people. He does that with the gifts that he gives to his people. If we were back in 1 Corinthians 12, you can just stay right where you are. I'll read these two verses to you, unless you want to see them. 1 Corinthians 12, in verse 11, he says, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. When it comes to gifts, it's the Spirit who gives them. He wills. Who gets what? And then it also says in verse number 18, concerning members of the body, Now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as He desires. God chooses. He chooses the gifts you have. He chooses your place in the body. God chooses. That's the exact same thing we see here in chapter number 1. God chooses. God chooses. Now, there's little word that goes with this, eklekomai, uh, which just sounds frightening, doesn't it? It's really not so complicated. Ek means to draw out. It's the yeah, out of concept of a preposition. And lego means to call. He calls out. Right? He calls out. We talk about being chosen. You're a called out one. When he talks about gifts, he chooses. He calls you out. He calls you out. Now, having a preposition in front of that means it's intensified. He intensely calls you out. Now, you know what the beauty of that simple phrase is? He did it on purpose. This is not an accident that God chose you. He's not saying, wow, how'd you get in here? He doesn't think that way. He chose you for this. It's intentional. It's deliberate. It's not an afterthought. He's not careless in this. You see? Sometimes he say, well, Lord, you must have made a mistake. No, don't ever think that. He doesn't make mistakes in choosing, does he? He chose. It's an intentional thing. Matter of fact, what's even nicer about it, and this is why I like working with the language, it's an aorist tense, which simply means it's already done. <laughs> Did he ask you first? No, he did not. He chose you. He, he didn't wait for you to give your input, as valuable as that might have been. He didn't say, hey, you know, I think I'll wait until they can help me with this. He didn't do that. He chose. Already done. Already done. Intentionally done. Already accomplished. And here's the beauty of it. I just love this little part here. We call it a middle voice. And that's a, not a common uh, expression in Greek compared to others. But that means he did it for himself. There's three options. Active voice is he did it and you received it. Passive voice means uh, he brought it to himself in the sense of, of you did it and he received it. All right? But this is middle voice that encompasses both of them. He did it for himself. He did it for himself. Sometimes we say that, well, that's for his own pleasure. We saw that in a verse, didn't we? We had to work and to will for his own pleasure. That's the picture of what God's at work in. He chose you on purpose for himself. Sometimes we even give it more of a push and we say, 
He did it himself for himself. Now it's starting to sound pretty complicated, isn't it? Let me, let me make it a little bit smoother for you. God has chosen for himself. God himself has chosen. Alright? God himself has chosen. So, God himself has chosen for himself. That's what he's done for each of us. God himself has chosen for himself. You are prepared people for his prepared work. So, Walk through 1 Corinthians with me one more time, and I'm going to add our little definition as we go. For consider your calling, verse 26 says, Brother, that not many were wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God himself has chosen for himself the foolish things of of this world to shame the wise. And God himself has chosen for himself the weak things of this world, to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world, and the despised, God himself has chosen for himself the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. You see how easily that verse falls into place now? How can we boast if he's the chooser, and he did it for himself? There's no room for us to to stand back and insert our pride here. And then verse 30. For by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. You know that anyway, don't you? The fact that you're saved. Who saved you? He did. Whose great idea was it? Yours? No, it was His. It was His love and mercy. Even while we were yet sinners, He died for us, right? So, we know it was all his work. He initiated it. He, he paid for it. He accomplished it. He brought you to himself. All these things are his. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. So, why would he turn service into something else? If our salvation is by his doing, isn't our service by his doing too? It makes sense, doesn't it? Again, he has to say it. So, he who's going to boast, let him boast in the Lord. God chooses for himself. It's a good thing to know in service. He chooses, and we're going to walk through this picture in the next couple of weeks anyway, uh, five groups in this passage. He, one is called the foolish. He chooses the foolish. He chooses the weak. We have both of those in verse 27. Uh, verse number 28, he chooses the base. Verse 28, he chooses the despised. He also chooses the things that are not. What an interesting toolbox he has. These are the things the world would not choose. These five God chooses. We're going to be more involved with that in the next couple of weeks as we study that. But there was something I was uh, reading this past week spent a little time on airplanes and thought, I'd take a little book with me. And I was just down to the last couple of chapters anyway. But uh, the chapter just before the end, uh, the uh, one previous to that, was uh, fascinating. One of those you just can't put down. The book is called Absolute Surrender by Andrew Murray. And uh, in that, uh, he was talking about faith and service. And he made this phrase, and I'm just going to jump right into it because the last part of it especially 
is uh, alarming to me. It caught my attention. Faith always means helplessness. That's the way his paragraph started. The great hindrance to trust is self-effort. So long as you have your own wisdom and thoughts and strength, you cannot fully trust God. You see where I started to get alarmed? How many times do we insert our little bit of strength, our little bit of wisdom, our little bit of thoughts in here? And here he makes this this, uh, phrase, So long as you have your own wisdom and thoughts and strength, you cannot fully trust God. As long as we are something, God cannot be all. So, oh, how many times have I wanted to be something? I thought I was something. I thought it was about what I bring to the table. Service. Isn't that what it is? It's what I insert into the ministry. It's what I bring in my wisdom. It's what I do. The more I study service, the more I realize these words are very clearly spoken. Faith always means helplessness. When brought to that, we should be. The hindrance to our trust is self-effort. We bring our wisdom, our thoughts, and our strength, and it just shows we don't fully trust God. Get uncomfortable just thinking about it. As long as we are something, God cannot be off. Now, there's another side of this. So, there's one side who say, but Lord, you know, that's hard. Yes, service is hard. And that's what he calls us to do. You know what's beautiful about service, though? He says, now take my yoke upon you and learn of me. He's not going to say, okay, you figure it out. Here's the rule book. Hand it to you. You go out and do it. But he says, hook up to me and I'll walk beside you and teach you what a servant looks like. I like that about our Savior. He doesn't just send you out there. He says, I'll go out with you. I'll walk with you. I'll teach you. I'll walk with you in this. And he's a perfect example of of trust, obviously. But there's that other side. and, And I know this side too. I grew up this way especially. Of fear. Of fear. A fear that uh, if I say, okay, God, make me what you want me to be, what you want me to be, he's going to make me something I don't want to be. You ever have that fear? Lord, uh, I'm giving you a, a, you know, a clean slate to work on, and, and what if it comes out to be something I don't want to be? What I don't want to do. You ever have that concern? That, that's an issue of faith, isn't it? It's a big issue of faith. There's a man that uh, you might have heard his name before. His name is Robert Murray McChaney. Lived in the early 1800s. Uh, you'd find him in a history book here and there, perhaps. He was a pastor in Scotland and uh, wanted very much to be a missionary to the Jews. Went to Palestine. Uh, with a group of others, and some of the names in his group you would find to be significant names in church history. But uh, Micheney, um contracted a disease, and uh, it took his life. He was 29 years old when he died. But he had time in that to write out, and he did a lot of reading. He, he or writing. He wrote out what he was thinking 
and his ministry and such diaries just full of information. They've turned them into books that we can enjoy. And I have his book and, and it's fascinating. But this was his conclusion. With all the desire in his heart to go and to serve, and he thought to the best people he could serve, after all they're God's people, right? He thought, ideal ministry, I want to go there and I want to give my whole heart to that. And yet the Lord stopped him cold in his tracks and put him in a bed and he couldn't do a thing. These are his words. I find that I am never so successful as when I can lie at Christ's feet, willing to be used or not, as seemeth good in his sight. That is something to learn. Sometimes you can learn a lot about watching somebody else serve, can't we? Here's a man who came to realize his success was not in what he did, but where he stayed. He stayed at the feet of Jesus. And if Jesus wanted to use him, that was his joy. If Jesus didn't want to use him, that was his joy. And he was content with that. Man, that really wrestles with a will, doesn't it? A will to do this and to do that. And he says, this is my will just to be what he thinks I should be. 29 years old, the Lord took him home. Yet people still learn from this man. See, we as people need to learn to trust the God who chooses. The God who chooses. I don't think any one of us will, if we submit to the Lord's will and do what He calls us to do, will stand up in heaven and say, Boy, I wish I'd done it a different way. I don't think we'd be there saying those words. Do you? If we did what He calls us to do? There's all kinds of groups to learn from. There are those who simply... Serve the Lord as He has designed us. This group that we're going to talk about, the base ones, the despised ones, the things they're not, they're all in the toolbox. Alright? You're wondering now what's in there. They're all in the toolbox. God's toolbox. Can we content ourselves with being what He has called us to be? Can we serve just like He has called us? We're going to talk about those things. But... I want to give you a picture as I, I close up here, and, and I want you to think about this, and it's, I think it's a pretty uh, fascinating thing. If you were called to do one thing in His service, even if it looks to be the most insignificant part ever, could you do it? Just that one thing. There's a, a picture in the Old Testament of those who were in charge of tent pegs. Alright? Book of Numbers kind of talks about them. Uh, Merari, the name not too common to most of us. It was a family, a family of Levites. The Levites had three sons. Levi had three sons, and each of those sons was given a role in the work as Levites pertaining to the tabernacle. Of course, you know that they were high priests, and they were priests of, family, of the family of Aaron. That was a, he was a Levite, but he didn't incorporate all the Levites. There were other Levite families there, and they also served as Levites. 
and worked in the temple area. But they had particular tasks. Every time the tabernacle needed moved. Now, we may not picture this often, but how many years did they live in the, old te- in the wilderness? Forty years. How many times do you think they had to pull up that tabernacle and move it? We don't know. But it had to happen. Alright? They moved from place to place to place. Every time, that tabernacle had to be disassembled and carried and reassembled in its next place. Every single time. And God gave them directions about that in Numbers chapter 4. He said, this is how you do it. And he says, uh, the Kohathites have this job, and the Gershonites have this job, and Merari's family has this job. And if you were a member of Merari's family, and you were between the age of 30 and 50, then you had a job every time that tabernacle moved. All right? There were 3,200 men in this family, in that age bracket. Now, that's a lot of people to work on moving the tabernacle. You would say, it sounds like they get in the way of each other. I don't know how you break down all these skills, but look at what they were called to do. I'll just read it to you. Numbers 4.29 starts, And for the sons of Merari, you shall number them by their families and their father's households, from 30 years and upward to the 50-year-olds. You shall number them, everyone who enters the service, to do the work of the tent of meeting. Now, this is the duty of their loads. For all their service in the tent of meeting, the boards of the tabernacle and its bars and its pillars and its sockets and the pillars around the court and their sockets and their pegs and their cords with all their equipment and with all their service, you shall assign each man by name the items he is to carry. So if you were of the family of Merari, you showed up for work and they said, we're going to move the tabernacle, uh, you get tent pegs, 33, 34, and 35. So you go over to where the tent pegs are. They were either holding the tabernacle or they were holding the fence around the perimeter of the tabernacle. And you pulled up those three pegs and you carried those three pegs to the next place. That was your job. A tent peg holder. That was it. You're a big, big, big role in moving the tabernacle. Carry three pegs. Alright? If you're called to carry a tent peg, you have been created by God, set apart for a purpose to carry a tent peg. In the fashion that He has already prepared for you, He is working in your mind to desire to carry that tent peg. (laughs) Preparing you to be really used Easily used in the manner of carrying it. In other words, you are a prepared tent peg person for carrying tent pegs. That's what this family was made of. Tent peg holders. It's not by accident that he made itself. Right? Matter of fact, you have this privilege. According to his ultimate wisdom and his great pleasure, he said, carry my tent pegs. That's what you were called to do. You're not the high priest. You're not slaying the lambs. You're not even carrying the altar. You're carrying a tent peg. Do you think yourself too great to carry a tent peg? Do you think you can do a better job at selecting your job? 
Maybe you say, hey, I'll trade you three tent pegs for that. Would we negotiate to get a better place? Work it up. I've been carrying tent pegs for 15 years. Do I get something better? Carry a tent peg. See, here's the fact. If God has so planned and prepared for you to carry a tent peg, and if he has invested his provisions in that and his instructions in that to carry a tent peg, why can't we do it for his glory? Can you imagine what that would look like? The whistling tent peg carrier. The happy tent peg carrier. The one who enjoys his tent peg carrying. That's what he's called them to be. Tent peg carriers. Can we be like that? See, the picture is God has chosen, right? God has chosen. You and me, we've been chosen. When it comes to service, that's where you start. You've been chosen by God. There's a lot in that picture. But have you checked lately how you're dealing with it between you and Him? Are you wrestling over that point? Are you confused over that point? Are you saying, Lord, I think I could have done better than this? Or are you saying, you know, I'm pretty good. He gave me an important plot. I'm better than everyone else. Have you thought that too, too? Have you talked to Him about service lately? This is where we start. God has chosen. Are we ready to submit to that? That's the test of the heart, isn't it? Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you have done. We sure have a lot to learn, I know, Lord, about service to you. About our willingness to serve you. There's that will that steps in so often, Lord, and you see it. Lord, we would like to be able just to simply submit ourselves to you in full fashion and and just go on from here and and act as if uh, we will never have this conflict again. But you know us well, and I'm glad you do. That's why you sent your Spirit to work in our hearts, to keep reminding us, even as your Word does, of what we've been called to do and be. And of course, we have our Savior before us, who we will not measure up to on this earth, Certainly, but we'd like to. We'd like to be more like him, the ultimate servant. So teach us, Lord. Truly put us in that yoke with him. Help us to walk as servants. Teach us again what you have done. And show us your wisdom. Show us uh, the way you prepare for us. But also show, show us your love in this. You intentionally chose this for us, Lord. May we intentionally do it for your honor and glory. Whatever it may be, work in our hearts today. Help us through our study. As we sit in your toolbox, Lord, ready to be used, I hope. Easy to be used, I trust. For your honor and glory, in Jesus' name, amen.